Now this morning we're continuing in our study on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' great teaching of how to be uh, one of his disciples, how to follow him. Reading from Matthew uh, chapter 5, starting at verse 17, Jesus begins, as we saw last week, by telling uh, his disciples that he has not come to sweep away the old ways taught in the Old Testament, but to fulfill them. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth. Until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Then skipping on to verse 27, uh, skipping over the chunk we looked at last week. You have heard it was said, do not commit adultery. I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for marital unfaithfulness, causes her to become an adulteress. And anyone who marries the divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but keep the oaths you have made to the Lord. But I tell you, do not swear at all either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. Simply let your yes be yes, and your no, no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who asks if you do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends his reign on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. 
How are we doing on that so far? If, if we think we are, then there's a little bit that we just read about honesty in the middle of that that we should listen to. But yeah, we're, we're, we're struggling, aren't we? Um, you know, you can read the Sermon on the Mount different ways. You can, you can look at it as it were from a... You know, imagine you were in the crowd around Jesus and you're looking at it from a distance, hearing the words, and you think, yeah, those great ideals, those, those are wonderful ideals, and it would be wonderful if people tried a bit harder to stick to them. Uh, Tolstoy, Gandhi did that. That's where Gandhi's ideas of nonviolence came from. He said, yeah, we, if we lived out these ideals, the world would be better, and that is true. But you come a little bit closer to the Sermon on the Mount, and you can imagine lots of people standing around Jesus that day, sitting there thinking, oh my God, th- there's no way I can live up to what's being said here. And those people might go away in despair, or they might just think, well, Jesus obviously doesn't mean it in any practical sense. All he's saying is perhaps just, you know, you're bad people, you need forgiveness, come for mercy. And, you know, that truth is definitely there. This is, there's no doubt at all, all of this teaching is meant to drive us close to Jesus, to make us come, as the beginning of the Beatitudes said, as people who are poor in spirit, people who are mourning from what we've been and what we've done. It's meant to come and drive us to God and say, I'm sorry, I need your help, I need your forgiveness. But as the sermon goes on and as it will carry on, it's clear that for those who really knew Jesus, for the disciples who knew him, who saw the love and compassion he had for them, and for the people who really heard what he's saying, your heavenly father, he's closer and dearer to them than they ever dared dream. And so they knew that there was more in mind. We are to come when we read this and ask for forgiveness. But God really is offering us a closeness to him and a help that enables us to go far beyond what we ever normally imagine we are capable of in serving him and in loving others. This passage is a bit like an ECG. I don't know if you've ever had one. You know, there are some illnesses that are obvious on the outside. You know, you've got a rash or a pain or a lump. Other ones only visible in little subtle ticks of the line of an ECG. This passage is a bit like that. Jesus is again and again looking at the issues of our heart, not just the big outward actions that we do, but the issues right in the middle of our hearts. Now, um, if you haven't been for the next few weeks and you've been plunged into teaching about lust and divorce and revenge, and you didn't really hope to be listening to things about that this Sunday, you're hoping something nice and encouraging, um, it's not my first choice of topic either, in a sense. <laughs> you know, it's not, these are difficult things to think about. But as we follow through what Jesus teaches, Jesus has told us that we need to hear some of these things, and they are good. He is a good God who has good in mind for us. And so when we listen to him, and the Holy Spirit works in our hearts, he does us good through these things. Now again, just a quick reminder, Jesus is teaching about these lifestyles for his disciples, and he's teaching that the way the religious teachers teach about how to live is not good. It is not helpful. They are using God's law, but they're misinterpreting it. You hear him say again, you have heard that it was said, this is the teaching you've heard from them. It's a teaching that says, 
keeps the laws sort of to the letter, but at the same time diminishes them so that it's easy to feel good about yourself, easy to say you've kept the rules. You know, you've probably dealt with someone in customer service like that. They've gone through all their scripts, done everything in all the lists of things they're allowed to do on the phone with you, but they've never actually listened to what your problem is. Uh, or is, am I the only one who gets customer service calls like that? That's the way it's tempting to live out the law of God. This is, this is the structure of the passage. He deals with six things in turn. Anger, which we dealt with last week. So sex, lust, marriage, honesty, revenge, love. So, to start, you've heard it was said, do not commit adultery. Again, Jesus is going to give us the authoritative, real interpretation of what God's law was meant about this. And Jesus is going to speak very openly and plainly. He's not a prude. He thinks that sexuality is an important part of life. And of course, the Bible is, in many different parts, very clear and practical and positive about sexual desire. Sex and desire are good gifts of God. Uh, if you don't believe that, go and read the Song of Songs in the Old Testament. But it's also powerful. Powerful as a wonderful catalyst for deepening marriage, but powerful also in a way that can be destructive relationally and emotionally. So Jesus reminds us, it's not enough just to keep out of bed with people, to just keep it in the most superficial, literal sense. God cares not just about what we do with our bodies, he cares about who we are in our hearts and our minds. Anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Anyone. Now, just to state the obvious, that applies to women too, looking at men, but Jesus has a lot of double standard to correct, so that's why his focus is there. Jesus isn't saying any kind of attraction or recognition of beauty is wrong. If we think that, we'll be beating ourselves up all the time when we haven't done anything wrong. But to, to look lustfully, or uh, you put two versions side by side, you see what it means here. Everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent, in other words, you look with purpose of desiring or imagining things, doing things with that person. A look, in other words, that certainly if the other person doesn't accept it would be violating. And if they were happy with it, it's nonetheless tempting them. Um, we obviously... A lot of other sins you, you wouldn't even think of going there. You know, if you've got a little bit of an inclination to murder, someone who looks at other people and thinks about carefully chopping them up, we would know was fairly sick. This is different because you can imagine it being more consensual. But nonetheless, Jesus is saying, it demonstrates something wrong with our hearts. And our society tries to tell us, you know, these things are okay if they're consensual, if no one's harmed particularly. And so it bombards us with adverts and magazines and films and videos and websites. And of course, people are harmed in the making of those. We could talk at length about that. Lives wrecked by the adult film industry. But closer to home, um, looking at people in this way harms our own hearts. We begin to treat people as objects, to, as they're to satisfy our desires. We objectify them. Now, um, in previous churches I've been in, some of the longest and most difficult pastoral situations I've had to deal with are people whose hearts have been messed up by porn in particular and the inability to have a normal relationship or see people normally. Now, 
for many people in this room, this just won't be a temptation for them. Other people are thinking it's almost the dominant one in their lives. But some, of, some people will be thinking, you know, I, I don't even know what that feels like. If you are thinking that, then the rest of the Sermon on the Mount is going to make it very clear we shouldn't feel proud all the same. But secondly, at the very least, I would, I would beg you, pray for young people growing up in the internet age who are being exposed to all sorts of porn and extreme forms of sexuality long before they are ready to even begin to understand how to deal with it. Um, There's a danger of it twisting kids' understanding of sexuality and love beyond all recognition. Um, Pray for our kids. Now, that could be crushing for some of us, hearing that the seriousness of what Jesus says is going on there. And we will come back to that. But Jesus, first of all, wants to warn us just how serious um, sin is. Uh, he, he takes a couple of extra verses. Um, so sometimes people ask why the Bible takes sexual sin so seriously. Um, what about pride? You know, the Bible probably agrees that's a worse sin in many ways. Or greed or gossip or so many of these other things. And, and, and the answer, of course, is actually quite simple. Just ask kids whose parents have been, who have been abandoned by parents because of an affair. Or an abandoned spouse. Falling in love can be great, can't it? But the pain and the agony that it causes when it happens at the right time is all around us. Um, And I'm sure that even if we haven't experienced it ourselves, there are plenty of us who are close to tears at thinking of the damage it causes. Jesus is saying, don't be one of those people who does that. Don't let uh, your sexual desire get out of control in a way that causes that. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. For it is better to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. That's scary stuff isn't it? It's scary stuff. And we're thinking straight away, Jesus can't mean this literally, because it's mad if he does, surely. But before we go there, we've got to think, is it true? Is it true that it would be better to lose an eye than to spend eternity in hell? That's not even a question, is it? I mean, that's just, the answer is obvious. You know, if you've got gangrene, you're going to die in two days unless you get your leg off. You might not want to do it in a hurry, but there's no question what the right choice is. And Jesus is reminding us, if his words about heaven and hell are for real, it is worth any cost we can pay to stay out of hell be with him. And so Jesus says, if your eye, your looking, causes you to sin, gouge it out. If your hand, things you do, cause you to sin, chop it off. Don't hesitate. The reason we're not looking for surgeons isn't because it's not true, that it's serious enough. It's because ultimately it's not our eyes or our hands that cause us to sin. It's our hearts, isn't it? As Jesus says in Matthew 15, 19, out of the heart come evil thoughts and actions, including murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony. It's so easy to blame our bodies or our glands, but we need to take these words seriously. Um... I didn't know myself, but I knew someone who knew someone who 
loved to play the bagpipes. Not in a loved the way to play the bagpipes sort of way, but in a loved to play the bagpipes so much that nothing else in life got a look in. He became a Christian. And he realized pretty quick that if he was going to carry on playing the bagpipes, he would be ignoring God and ignoring others around him. So he got into his boat, sailed off into the bay and chucked them into the sea. That's the sort of approach he's saying. There is sin and temptation to sin in so many things and it is worth just getting it away. Whether that's distancing or yourself from a person you're tempted to lust after or cancelling the Netflix subscription or getting a friend to look after your internet browser history or so many other things with so many other sins. Jesus continues on to talk about marriage. It's been said anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. Jesus takes that command and he points out its seriousness. God's law had set up rules for divorce because ancient cultures so often had, the, basically the attitude was any, any man could get rid of his wife on a whim. So it had set up a system to protect women from that. Um, they had rules about what, how serious the situation had to be. They had, and it had rules about requiring proper paperwork to be done so that people wouldn't, that woman wouldn't be falsely accused of other things. But Jesus is saying, you guys, you've, you've taken that provision and turned it into an excuse for just getting rid of your wife. You know, your people who are thinking, I'd like to trade this wife in for a new model, so I'm just going to give her the paperwork. Jesus is so clear about the depth and seriousness of marriage. In Matthew 19, in the beginning, the creator made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. It's a long way from being mere friends or housemates, isn't it? And from the beginning, God's intention has been that marriage is till death do us part. And Jesus says, the reason for the divorce laws was because your hearts were hard. It's making the best of a bad job. It's damage control. You know, if your kid takes up smoking, you... Even if you permitted it, you might want them to smoke outside rather than just doing it in the house. It's damage control. And Jesus is saying, you've turned that into permission to divorce your wife every time you want to trade her in. It's the Henry VIII approach to marriage. In our time, of course, just falling out of love is often in the same way thought of as a good reason for divorce. But Jesus is clear that it's meant to be a committed, lifelong, intense, deliberate focus on choosing to love that person through thick and thin. There are times and reasons when marriage breaks down. Sexual unfaithfulness is the most obvious, but Paul talks too about abandonment by a non-Christian spouse. And of course, that kind of situation applies too to sort of serious evil, uh, unchristian behavior, abuse or violence, all sorts of other situations like that where someone won't listen to rebuke or change their ways, but acts in a way that is a deep, deep shattering of the marriage bond. Once again, this is a painful topic, isn't it? It's 
And, and if we've gone wrong here, it's something that can never be put right in some ways. You can't just go back and turn back the clock. That wouldn't be right often. And whatever happens, it carries so much emotional freight and pain and agony. And the rest of us must never jump to judgment when confronted by these situations. We don't know the history in people's lives. We should approach it with all the sympathy and the love we can muster. But Jesus calls us to be people of lifelong faithfulness and love, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, in every way that we can. Jesus then turns to public life. You've heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but keep the oaths you have made to the law and to the Lord. It's good, simple teaching. But Jesus says, don't swear at all. It's better not to make oaths. What he has in mind is when people swear by something, you know, I swear by heaven that what I say is true, or I promise on my mother's grave, or I cross my heart and hope to die. He says, don't, don't swear by any of these things. Because when you do, you're saying, if I wasn't swearing, there might be a chance I'd wriggle out. But this time you can bank on what I'm saying. And we all know people, don't we, who will add honestly, or I swear, or I wouldn't lie to you to every sentence, often when they're asking for something. And we don't trust those people, do we? Jesus is saying to become someone dependable and trustworthy in such a way that you'd never need to make a promise. That your yes is yes and your no is no. People know that when you make a commitment, your word is good. Uh, as an aside, people wonder if that means you can't take an oath in court. But uh, down through the ages, uh, the church has always agreed that if, someone, if, you're, if it's demanded that so, uh, someone outside the authority over you demands you take an oath, that's a different thing to choosing to do it in a way that might allow you to bend the truth at other times. So if you're uh, in court or becoming a policeman or a doctor, it's legitimate to take the oath under those circumstances. And Jesus does that uh, at his trial. The high priest puts him, says, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell, you as, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus replies, yes, it is as you say. But in daily life, we're to be people who when we say, I'll do it, can be trusted. And for a lot of us, for me certainly, that challenge there isn't necessarily meaning to tell the truth. It's living up to the words that we speak, isn't it? It's not promising more than we deliver and making sure we deliver whatever it costs. And that can be hard, can't it? The real honesty Jesus wants comes from the heart in a way that's so transparent that people won't doubt it at all when we say, I'll do it. Then Jesus turns to our desire for revenge, our response to those who hurt us or do us wrong. You've heard it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. That's what the law said. Punishment was never to be more than that. There's no kind of vengeful gangster-style feuds to start. But equally, punishment was to show the person victimizing someone else what it cost. But Jesus is pointing out that law was never, ever meant to justify revenge of our own. It's a, it's a law for judges to tell them how to punish and how not to go overboard in punishment particularly. It was set a strong limit on how, what they would do. 
And Jesus is saying, for you, there's no personal revenge, not just in big things, but in small ones too. So if someone strikes you in the right cheek, turn to him the other also. That's probably, the context is probably a fight. Uh, someone trying to get you into a fight, you know, an insulting slap on the face. You know, don't, don't bite. Don't let them get a rise out of you. Take the insult. And he carries on. If someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Or if someone, a Roman soldier, forces you to carry their bags for one mile, take it them for two miles. Like they did with Simon of Cyrene when he carried Jesus' cross. Or if a beggar asks for you, uh, don't, don't turn away from them. Now we have to be wise with each of these things, don't we? You know, Jesus is going to give instructions soon on how to deal with being wronged by a brother or sister. And he tells us to be proactive in those situations. He's not saying not to resist evil, but he is saying we mustn't, out of mere selfishness or desire for revenge, choose just to do what comes to our minds and hearts immediately. And Jesus, of course, himself is the example in court. He was struck in the face. And, and he challenged them. He didn't just let them get away with it. He didn't seek revenge either. But he did challenge them. If I said something wrong, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? Martin Luther King uh, would preach on this more than once, pointing out that hate multiplies hate in a descending spiral of violence. We know that's true, don't we? Love is the only force capable of transforming an enemy into a friend. It's creative, redemptive power. And finally, Jesus comes to love for enemies. Perhaps the way the teachers of the law distorted the law most of all. Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. The law says love your neighbor. It never says hate your enemy. They were saying, I've got love my, love my neighbor, okay, but that means I can still get away with hating my enemy, doesn't it? But of course it doesn't. The law says your donkey, neighbor, your enemy's donkey falls down under its load in the street, you go help pick it up. In other words, you see them with a puncture by the side of the road in their car, go help them. Jesus says, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Love them. Seek to do them good. Pray for them. Pray for them often and gladly that things will turn out well for them because then you will be like sons of your Father in heaven who causes his son to rise in the evil and the good. You know, when the sun rises on your friendly local atheist, Jesus is saying, I wanted to brighten your day. He sends rain and sunshine on the evil and the good. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not the tax collectors doing that? In other words, the people who were living for profit and having to sell out to the Romans in those times, they, they, they loved the people who loved them. There's nothing special about loving your kids and your spouse and your friends. Hard enough as it is, isn't it? But he's saying, those who, who follow me are to press beyond that. Past natural goodness to loving those who hate their guts. To loving scammers who tried to get them out of your life savings or people who smash the wing mirror of your car for fun or say cruel things just to see you cry. That's goodness. That's what Jesus did. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Once again, how are we doing with that? I realize that we have touched on deeply painful and difficult things for many people. And realistically, there shouldn't be one of us, after listening to Jesus' word, who could feel self-satisfied or proud. But for, for some of us, there will be particular grief. Um, 
I and others would love to talk and pray and, if it is appropriate, cry with you afterwards, if that is what you would like. And as a church, we are to weep with those who weep. Jesus did each of these things for us. He was perfect, as his heavenly Father was perfect. He loved his enemies. He loved you when you were his enemy. He sent his Son to die and love you. He cared for you utterly. And he was faithful all the way to death. He was utterly true, utterly honest. He is calling us, each of us, to recognize our failures and our sins and to come to him for mercy. And he will give it. Remember back to the beginning of the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If you feel empty after reading this or listening to Jesus' words, he will fill you up. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. There is mercy. But as we... He wants to, us too to come and begin to live this out. And even if we do it a little, people will begin to see there is something supernatural, something beyond natural in it. For that, we need the power of God. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Jesus ends this by talking about his heavenly Father. They were as shocked by that as the bit about being perfect. People didn't call God their heavenly Father in those days. Jesus is saying, God is closer to you and loves you more than you could possibly know, even though you have fallen short in every single one of these things I've just spoken about. He loves you far more deeply, is far closer to you, and far more ready to help you. And as we go into chapter 6, every single truth in the next chapter is undergirded by that reality, the God who is with you at all times, in every failing, in in secret as well as in public. I mean, we prayed some of the words from chapter 6 a little while ago. Our Father who art in heaven. The Father who forgives and the Father who is with us. And if we want, if we want to come and live out this high calling that God has offered, He will send His Spirit. He will answer our prayers to change our hearts from the inside out and to transform us. We need him and we need the power of God to be at work in our hearts. Let's pray. Father God, we live in a world full of grief and pain. And we are a part of that. We have felt, so many of us, such deep betrayals such deep agony, such pain as that others have done to us. And at the same time, Father, we ourselves have not lived close to the way that you call us to, close to the way that we wish we had even ourselves. We have caused so much pain to others too. And so we are sorry, but we come to you asking for forgiveness, knowing that you give it, 
but asking also for healing in our hearts, for comfort and grace, for knowledge that you are a heavenly father to everyone who comes to your son and trusts him. May your spirit move now in this room to heal and to comfort the broken, those who are feeling bruised and beaten today. And may your spirit move in our hearts so that we will know the depth and majesty and magnitude of your love for us so that we will be able to live out and live in a new way, living your love from the heart, loving those around us with the deepest faithfulness and compassion and grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.